Why don't we turn in our Bibles this evening back to the book of Isaiah chapter 32 as we continue our study through Isaiah together. I know it probably sounds a little bit uh, aggressive. I would like to, Lord willing, to take us out through the remainder of chapter 34 this evening, which will mean we'll have to move at a little bit more of a rapid pace and comment a little bit less. We'll uh, see if that actually unfolds. And I know some of these earlier chapters in Isaiah can be a little bit tedious. There's some heavy stuff a lot about God's judgment, different woes that are being pronounced. The encouraging thing is as we get to chapter 35 and start moving forward, particularly as we hit chapter 40, just some really wonderful, encouraging spots uh, come to us in Isaiah's prophecy and some things that probably you're a little bit maybe more familiar with uh, in Isaiah's prophecy, but uh, we'll see if we can bring ourselves to the end of chapter 34 this evening if the Lord permits, as we're looking at these things together. Isaiah chapter 32, we went last time as far as verse 15, which was referencing to us, if you remember, this description of a time when God is going to pour out His Spirit upon His chosen people, the nation of Israel. The Bible does describe to us in places like Joel chapter 2, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, excuse me, 36 and 37, as well as in Zechariah 12, uh, these indications that there is still going to be a great outpouring of God's Spirit upon the chosen people, the nation of Israel, even as God poured out His Spirit upon the church. Uh, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we saw last time as we finished our time together that the great change that would come in conditions would happen. Verse 15, we saw as we concluded, he said, this will be like this until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, a great outpouring from heaven upon God's chosen people. And as a result of that, the wilderness would then become a fruitful field, that which was barren, that which was unfruitful would have a change. It would begin to flourish. It would become productive, and even the fruitful field would then ultimately be counted as a forest. Now, as we go into verse 16 this evening, Isaiah seems to now be describing to us some of what the, we might say, byproducts will be of this great outpouring of God's Spirit, that as God's Spirit is poured out, and that which is barren now becomes fruitful, that which was once dry and struggling begins to flourish and have fresh life. We're told here, I believe, further what the outcome of the Spirit being poured out upon God's people will be like. He says, verse 16, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. So notice, when the Spirit of God has been poured out upon His people, we're told here that one of the byproducts of that will be a renewal of righteous living in the lives of God's people. He says that justice will begin to dwell and righteousness will remain among the fruitful field. People will begin to live in a renewed sense of righteousness, wanting to live right before the Lord, living right among one another because now the Spirit of God is governing their lives. It's not their human spirit, which by nature is selfish and rebellious, but now the Spirit of God influencing his people, causing them to live in a renewed righteousness as they're serving the Lord and living right among one another. He goes on to tell us, verse 15, and the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. So notice the byproduct of righteousness being expressed through the lives of God's chosen people here, he says, is it will produce the fruit of peace among the people of God. That is a, a peace in the sense of peace internally, but I believe also a description of peace relationally. That is, God's people will begin to live in harmony among one another. There will be a greater, not only peace within them, but a greater peace among them. In the way that they're living with each other, things like hatred and resentment and animosity and all the things that are the byproduct of ruined human relationships and the way that we struggle as humanity because we're sinful, broken, flawed people, that will be lifted in that day as the Spirit of the Lord is poured out and righteousness begins to characterize God's people, not only the Jews, but really all those who will one day be living even in the kingdom reign when Christ has returned he says the work of righteousness will be peace. There'll be a greater peace on the earth. And the effect of that righteousness, he says, will bring a quietness 
among the people of God is an assurance forever. Righteousness produces just sort of, we might say, a restfulness, a calm, he says, just a quietness, a calmness, a sense of assurance and confidence that all is okay. And of course, it will all be okay forever because then Jesus will be reigning. And that's what's going to make the difference. We have to understand until the day that the Prince of Peace returns to this earth and sets up his throne and begins to rule and reign on this planet, there will never be this longing that we all have within our hearts that everything would be peaceful and quiet and calm among us. We can never put our ultimate confidence in any human government will never come to pass until the Prince of Peace is reigning. There will never really be a righteousness on the earth, peace on the earth, and quietness. But one day that is coming, he says, and that will be our assurance forever when Jesus is finally reigning and taking control of humanity as he should. Verse 18, he says, And my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places, though hail, he says, comes down on the forest, and the city is brought low in humiliation. Now, verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19, he refers, obviously, to a time of suffering among humanity, even among the chosen people of Israel, a time, again, which will be very difficult. We've been seeing some of this described in our study on Sunday mornings regarding the time of the tribulation and our study of revelation. And he describes here, though hail comes down and the city is brought to humiliation despite suffering and hardships, notice he says God's people will be able to experience a peace even in the midst of the hardships and they will enjoy a degree of peace as they live in security and in quiet. Now, you know verse 18 is clearly got to be referring to something that is yet still further out because as we think of the current existence of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and God says, my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwelling places and quiet resting places that's not going on right now. <laughs> the exact opposite of that is what we see happening right now. They are not currently experiencing peaceful habitation there, even in their own land, nor security, nor quiet resting places. We see a lot of the exact opposite happening, and that will continue, unfortunately, to be poured out upon them, even like hail coming down upon them, even in the, the attack of their surrounding neighbors and enemies. There will be perpetual problems there in the Middle East until the day when the Lord comes and eradicates and brings this change. And that change will happen when his spirit is poured out upon his people in the last days and God deals with the nation of Israel, uh, specifically finishes his plan among them and deals directly with their enemies as our verses even this evening will clearly describe. God will once for all eradicate their enemies from them. And when he does that, verse 20 says, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. So again, he's picturing there in verse 20, a blessed existence, a time coming when they will thrive as a nation, as a people. Nothing will hold them back from enjoying abundance, he says, like sowing beside waters, great fruitfulness, productivity. And to be able to send out freely your ox and your donkey means that everything is safe, there's nothing that's threatening, and so he's describing, again, a, a blessed existence when things are thriving for the Jews, and there is no one trying to hinder their abundance and their prosperity. Chapter 33, verse 1, he now comes back to another one of these woes, and as we've said before, the idea of woe to you, this is a warning. God's giving a strong warning, and here he says, woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. And to you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, God says, you will be plundered. And when you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will then deal treacherously with you. Now, as we look here at verse 1, God pronounces this woe. And it seems this woe is directed probably in direct connection to the events in 2 Kings chapter 18. And you can go back and reacquaint yourself with that. That was a time period historically when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against the, the nation of Judah in the south. 
and was threatening in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah. And due to his fearful threats and all the intimidation, Sennacherib was able to assess through his treacherous acts and his manipulation, and as it describes here, sort of a unfair plundering of the goods of the people in the land, Sennacherib was able to assess this really heavy tribute of money upon Judah as payment to pacify him as he was threatening the southern kingdom, so much so uh, that they ended up actually going in and plundering the temple precincts themselves, stripping the gold and the silver in order to pay this tribute as they were being plundered uh, and treacherously threatened. And even with the treachery and the plundering of the wealth of God's people, he still didn't go away. He still continued to threaten them in this unfair treatment of them. And God here seems to be describing a woe, a warning against Sennacherib, because of the treacherous mistreatment that he had sowed against the people of the Lord. And he says here, one day all of this treacherous dealing that you have brought to pass, he says, one day you're going to reap what you have now sowed. So again, as they came in and as Sennacherib, he says, you have dealt treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. In other, it was just, it was unfair treatment. He was ripping the people of God off. He was doing things against them that was oppression and mistreatment, trying to rob them and steal from them. And he then says to them, God warns Sennacherib saying, when you cease plundering, you will be plundered. Notice the sowing and the reaping. This is always God's principle. What one reaps will ultimately be sowed. And he says, in the same way you have sown this plundering of people in unfair ways, you've stolen resources from them, you have dealt with them treacherously, he says, one day you will be plundered. And when you make an end, he says, verse one there, of dealing treacherously, they will one day deal treacherously with you. Again, it's just a reminder here how God often orchestrates this principle, whether it's with individuals, whether it's with nations, this reality that God does not allow anything to happen unchecked. God will ultimately settle accounts. God knows how to orchestrate, we often refer to as poetic justice or reaping what one has sown. And so God says here, in the same way you have treacherously dealt with others and plundered them, he says, one day you're going to find people dealing treacherously with you as the outcome of that now, verse 2 seems to be the cry of the people of the Lord who have undergone this treacherous mistreatment. Those who have been plundered, unfairly robbed of their gold and their silver through the heavy tribute that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, brought against them, they cry out in response to the Lord, verse 2, saying, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you be their arm, the idea is their strength, the strength of one's arm. Be their arm, their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. So this seems to be describing here again God's cry or the, the people of God's cry unto the Lord, asking God, notice in verse 2 there, to be gracious to them because they have, through this process, waited upon the Lord. Rather than resorting to retaliation in their own fleshly efforts, rather than trying to resort to human schemes or relying on worldly tactics or trying to solve their problems themselves, seeking for worldly resources to fix the situation, they say, Lord, we've waited for you. Lord, we in faith, we have waited for you. We have asked for you to act. We have waited. We haven't acted impulsively. We haven't schemed something in some carnal effort to try and take care of this situation. Lord, we have waited for you. So would you be gracious to us, Lord? We've waited upon you to act, and we're looking to you now to honor that and to, to bless us because they chose to humbly wait upon God to act for them. They were asking that God would now be gracious to them in their situation and that he would answer by coming to their aid, that it would be the arm of the Lord's strength every morning, again, like the strong arm of the Lord, that the arm of the Lord extending now his hand to become directly involved in their situation, that he would show himself strong and be gracious. They wanted to see God intervene 
and spare and deliver them in the time of their trouble. You know, as I read these verses here, they make me think of one of the statements we saw back in chapter 25, verse 9. I'll read it to you. It tells us this, Isaiah 25, verse 9, and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And ultimately, that is what would come to pass for Judah, as we've referenced many times, when in one night, after what looked like an absolute guarantee that they were going to be defeated and lose all, the Lord sent forth that angel. We'll see it in chapters 36 and onward, the historical account. It shows up three times in the Old Testament because God wanted it to be a known occasion where when it looked like it was absolutely impossible to survive or to overcome the odds, the Lord sent forth that angel, and in one night, he dealt with the entire Syrian army and turned them around and sent the remainder of the 185,000 soldiers who died, whatever were left of the ranks of Assyria, he sent them all away. And they all turned, and they went back to their homeland, and God brought a mighty deliverance, and in one day, God turned the whole thing around. God miraculously honored them waiting upon him and he was gracious to them. And look, this, this becomes just a good reminder to us because sometimes we find ourselves in situations where perhaps we've been dealt a treacherous blow. Maybe we have been dealt with in an unfair way. Things have happened and someone, like described in verse 1 there, has plundered us and taken advantage of us and they're dealing treacherously with us. And we're thinking, Lord, what can we do? What can we possibly do to bring change in this situation? And look, the one thing that we can do is we can pray. We can wait upon the Lord and say, Lord, we are waiting upon you because, Lord, if your strong arm gets involved in this situation and you so choose according to your will and purpose to extend your arm and your strength in this situation, Lord, you can bring deliverance and you can solve the trouble. You can resolve the problem. And so, Lord, we're waiting upon you, they say, to be gracious to us. And what a great prayer that we as well, as three people, as five people, as a church, we can pray the same things. Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited on you, Lord. We've waited on you. Now be gracious to us, Lord. We need your favor. We need your help. And how wonderful to realize that we are never without that opportunity still if we're able to seek the Lord in faith and wait to see what he might do. Verse 3 goes on to say, And at the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee, as I just referenced, and that's exactly what would happen. Perhaps maybe there's some indication of what happened when that angel came in that night and slayed 185,000 Assyrian troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem there, laying siege against it at the noise of the tumult, the people did flee. They ran as great death went through the camp and through the military ranks. He says, when you lift yourself up, the nations will be scattered and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering. Notice he's using metaphors now, analogy. He says it will be like the gathering of the caterpillar. The idea there is like a poetic language. He's trying to describe how absolutely easy it is for God, because his arm is so strong compared to the weakness of human strength. He says it will be so easy for God to solve this situation. He says as simple as like a person bending over and picking up a little caterpillar and changing its direction or picking up a caterpillar and stopping it from crawling forward. He says, God, that's how easy it would be for you. Like a human picking up a little caterpillar, God, your strong hand can intervene and solve this situation for us. He says, and as the running to and fro, verse four of locusts, he shall, that is God shall run upon them. And again, when a locust went through a territory, it severely devoured everything in its path and nothing would stop a swarm of locusts. And this is the idea here, that when God gets involved, if God moves in a situation like a swarm of locusts, God can overrun anything and anyone who gets in his path, if he so chooses. <laughs> and like a strong swarm of locusts, he can come in 
and run upon a situation and turn the whole matter around for his purpose if it be a part of what he is doing in his work for his people. Verse 5, it says, and the Lord is exalted. Again, when God would work in this way and defeat the Assyrians, it would result in the exaltation of the Lord for he dwells on high and he has filled Zion, Jerusalem, with justice and with righteousness. Again, the Lord reigns over all. He's enthroned. He remains in total control. He's exalted and dwelling on high. And he is the one, notice, who would bring about for his people there in Judah, in Jerusalem, he would bring about justice. That is, he would bring about what's just. He would solve the situation and do what was just for Jerusalem, and he can restore righteousness when sin has entered in and defiled and polluted things. He can restore righteousness back to a situation there in the city of Jerusalem. And I love verse 6. He says, and wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times, and the strength of salvation the fear of the Lord is his treasure. So some beautiful little phrases there. God says to his people, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability, the stabilizing thing for your times. Wisdom and knowledge. Again, a knowledge of what is right and true, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of what is right. He says that as well as wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is taking knowledge that God has given to us and putting it into practice through proper living. That is wise choices and good decisions using understanding that God gives to us in knowledge and then actually putting that into practice by living out properly the way that we should, our lives, our choices, our behaviors and decisions. And he says here, a knowledge of what's right and true and then putting it into practice through wise choices, that will bring stability to God's people. And good for us to remember as we perhaps worry about instability in the world or instability in our lives and insecurity and all, and, and, and we, we lose our, our footing sometimes. And sometimes we struggle with mental instability. And God says here, the stability of your times is not necessarily money. It's not how much resources you have in the bank. It's not what pills you can take to calm yourself down or settle your nerves or what you can drink. He says, no, knowing the truth, knowledge of what's right, and living out wisely, that will be your stability. That's what will keep you stable, God says. Knowledge and wisdom, God says. Trust in that. That will be the stability of your times. And he says, and it will bring about strength. The idea is it will strengthen your coming salvation. It will be the thing that strengthens you to one day soon experience the deliverance that's coming. The salvation that the Lord will bring for you that you don't need to bring about yourself and I love the end of verse 6 as well where he says, and the fear of the Lord, notice, is his treasure, his treasure. And again, the fear of the Lord is having a healthy reverence for God, having a healthy reverence for God and respecting God and respecting his ways. The Bible says here is a valuable asset, like a treasure, a valuable asset from God's vantage point. I love how he describes it as his treasure, not our treasure. The idea is it's a treasure, it's a valuable treasure that God deposits into our account. God says, from my vantage point, if you want true treasure, if you want true value, if you want to be wealthy and be rich and rich in God from heaven's perspective, he says, here's where that comes from. Have a healthy reverence for God and live in a way where out of reverence, you always respect God and you respect God's ways above everything and everyone else in your life. That you say, you know what? The fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord shall be safe. And so I am gonna live in the fear of the Lord. And as I live in the fear of the Lord, that will be one of the greatest treasures. He says, it'll be the most valuable asset you'll have in your life as my people. To just know that you can live in that way he goes on, verse 7, to say, Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside, 
and the ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. So those who wanted peace find themselves grieving and weeping. The reason, because of what they were doing, the Assyrians, the highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases, again, as the Assyrians came through that whole land, first conquering other nations, then conquering the northern kingdom. They brought great devastation and suffering, describing, I believe, the king of Assyria. He says he has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. Again, he just went through with just severe animosity and, and harsh, severe treatment, murdering and killing people as he went through the different territories, despising the cities. He says of the king of Assyria, he regards no man. That is, he has regard for no one. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon, which is to the north of Israel, is shamed and shriveled. Sharon has become like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. So he describes here all the negative effects of the actions of the evil Assyrians, and particularly their evil king who was leading them at the time, and how it had taken a toll of great suffering upon many territories, not just Israel and Judah in the southern kingdom alone, but this leader had regard for no city and for no man, we're told here. He had regard for no one, and he broke promises and selfish acts, showing no regard for the welfare of people. As he describes the cities laying waste, excuse me, the highways laying waste, the traveling man ceasing, that this man, this leader, broke promises, he broke the covenant, he despised people in cities, and he regarded no man. Now, as I look at that, there's a part of that to me in verse 8 where I have to wonder, too, if Isaiah was maybe even seeing further down because that is a very fitting picture of really a lot of what the Antichrist will one day do. He will be someone who regards no man, who cares not, nothing for the welfare of human beings, who will break covenants. He will break the covenant, the seven-year covenant he'll make with the nation of Israel. We just talked about that, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, this past Sunday morning. And the Antichrist will have regard for no man. He will just bring suffering in a tremendous degree upon humanity. Now, as this king of Assyria, this wicked king is coming through regarding no one, not regarding the welfare of people, harshly mistreating people, doing everything in complete selfishness regarding no one but what he wants. And when someone does that and begins to abuse people and abuse humanity, and listen, worse, God forbid, abuses God's people and regards no one and begins to harm people, ultimately, like a loving, protective father, eventually God's going to say, that's just about enough. I love verse 10. God says in response to what this was happening, God says, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. Right on. Let's go, Lord. <laughs> I, just, I just like when every once in a while... You know, and again, the, the fatherly heart of me can just kind of resonate with it. It's kind of like at a certain point, God just says, that's it. I've had enough. I've had enough. And all of a sudden now, it's like you have awakened the severity, the sternness of that father where all of a sudden you just set him on the warpath now. And he just says, you know what? That is about enough. And now I'm going to arise and I'm going to fix the situation, God says. I am going to get involved in the situation, he says. I'm going to arise, and I'm going to be exalted. No person is going to be in charge anymore, he says. And I am going to lift myself up to the place of honor that I should have. At a certain point, when they persisted too long and too far in their evil and their harsh treatment, the Lord would no longer sit by passive and wait anymore. He said, that's it. I've had enough, and I am determined now to act and to intervene and to stop the error of the Assyrians and that wicked leader who was ruling over them. And that's exactly, we, of course, we know what God did. He says, verse 11, you shall conceive chaff, that is what's worthless. You shall bring forth stubble, something that's of, of no value, of no weightiness. Your breath as fire shall devour you. 
and the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Again, thorns burn very quickly. There's not much substance to them. It does not take long to burn through a pile of thorns. And this is the idea here. When you arouse the burning anger of God, God can make a quick end to something. And God says, like the burning of thorns, once you have provoked me to that point and I have to arise and deal with this in my anger severely, he says, here you are afar off, verse 13, what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. So doing such in a manner, he says, where all will see both near and those who are far off. The idea is everyone who's on looking at this time will have absolutely no question. God said they will know, verse 13, this is what I have done. Nobody else did this, God said. They'll know very clearly this was my might, it was my power, that I got involved in the situation, and this was what I have done by my might to rectify the evil and the wrong behavior of man and to do what was necessary to help my people so that my will and purpose could come to pass. And as God intervened, he did so very strongly to deliver Judah historically and throw off the Assyrians. Now, when God did that, and again, as we said, in one night, an angel sent forth and 185,000 Assyrian troops are laying dead. That's a lot of people laying dead around the city of Jerusalem. In one night, an angel slays 185,000 Assyrian troops. When that happened, verse 14 says, and the sinners in Zion. Now, now we're talking about people inside Jerusalem. These are God's people. So he says, the sinners, now he says, in Zion are afraid. And fearfulness seized the hypocrites. Who among us, they said, they got scared, shall dwell with this devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings. So as God strongly judged and humbled the enemy outside the camp, outside the city walls, the Assyrians, and wiped them out with great severity in his anger, notice the outcome of that is it brought fear into the hearts of his own people living inside the city of Jerusalem who saw the severe consuming fire that God was. And notice it says in verse 14, all those inside the city who were living in sin and were living in hypocrisy, they started shaking in their own boots because they realized, uh-oh, we're God's people. We know better. If that's what God did to the Assyrians who worship pagan gods and don't have light, if that's what God did with our enemies with those who aren't even in relationship with him. What's going to happen to us as his own people who know the truth and have the light, and yet we've lived in sin? We're living in hypocrisy, and it shook them to the core, as it rightly should have. As they saw the powerful hand of God, it shook them to the core in a healthy way. You know, I think sometimes that's a a helpful thing when God takes those who are his own people and they're living in sin and living in hypocrisy and God acts in a way and, and it's like he kind of shakes the house. The Bible tells us the time has come for judgment to begin where at the house of the Lord, Peter says, where we recognize that the consuming fire that God is is something that to some degree we need to answer to and all the more we're held to a higher account. Where's people? And the people inside of Zion were shaking in their boots, wondering, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to us? Now, verse 15 seems to answer the question, how can someone ensure they will avoid facing the painful consequences of the Lord's strong displeasure? That's what they're asking. Oh no, what's going to happen to us? How do we avoid the strong displeasure of the Lord and those consequences coming against us. It's almost as if God knew their hearts and he answers their questions. Verse 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions. Again, remember, they were plundering the people. They were manipulating them financially. They were doing crooked things to extort money and wealth from them. 
This is what he's describing, those who had gain from oppressing others, crookedness in business dealings and money. He who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, and stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, doesn't even want to hear it, holding their hands over their ears, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high, God says. His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks. They'll be protected and shielded, and bread will be given him, and his water will be sure. So God almost answers the question of their heart, hey, who can stand before such a consuming fire and a holy and an awesome, powerful God? God answers, the one who lives in right relationship with me. That's all I'm asking, God says, that you would live in right relationship with me. In other words, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from their hypocrisy, and that they would walk in a righteous life of obedience. He says, these are those who will find themselves shielded and preserved, who will God will protect them and provide for them and give them what they need. And he describes that righteous living as one who walks, verse 15, righteously, speaks in an upright manner. They use their words properly. He says, verse 15, the person who lives righteously wants nothing to do with the gain of crooked financial opportunity and even gestures with their hands refusing bribes. In other words, if the opportunity is presented to them of some financial advancement, some way to gain more wealth or to get ahead financially through bribery or extortion or some crooked way, that they say, absolutely not, I want nothing to do with that. And, and they right away, I, I, there's no way, I don't care how much money I can make, if that is going to mean I have to compromise morally and do what is not right in God's sight, get it away from me. I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to make money crookedly or inherit wealth in some you know, inappropriate way. And the person who just refuses such, just get that out of here. I don't want nothing to do with that. Take that away from me. It says they won't even have an interest in hearing or seeing anything that's evil. That is, they don't even want to see it. Don't even show it to me. Don't even talk to me about it. I, I want nothing to do with that. I want to live in a right way before the Lord. That's my treasure. That's what my value is tied up in, what really is a rich life. He says such a person will find themselves dwelling on high, living in a higher way, on a higher plane, ultimately dwelling on high with the Lord and finding the Lord as their shield and their defense and bread being given to him and water will be sure. Again, may not be luxury, may not be tons of wealth and riches, but God says you can guarantee you'll have bread and water. <laughs> In other words, God says you'll have what you need. And that's all we're promised from God anyway, that, that our, our food and our sustenance will be supplied Again, the Bible warns us very strongly in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that those who desire to be rich, the love of money, how it causes so many people to deviate, it says it becomes the root of all kinds of evil. And there are those who have walked away from a healthy and right relationship with the Lord who have turned to crooked paths simply because of the enticement of wealth have taken a crooked means of making money and getting more wealth in their pocket. And here God says the righteous person despises such things. Says, I, I, there's no way. I don't want a crooked way to get wealthy. I want nothing to do with that. They refuse it, don't even want to see it, and don't even want to hear it. Now, having refused those things, God says not only will you be protected and taken care of, but verse 15, he says in promise, and your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And they will see the land that is very far off. So appears Isaiah, I believe here, seeing down to something further out of time period when one day they will see the true king, the real king they've been looking for, the Messiah king. Not Hezekiah, not the next king of Israel. Ultimately, that wouldn't be the thing that they were really looking for. But God says, one day, if you do what is right and live right before me, one day your eyes will see the king in his beauty and the land that is very far off. I believe perhaps looking all the way down to the time when the land is enjoying the messianic reign, the time when the kingdom age comes and the land is flourishing the way that God intends for it to be when the true king, the king of righteousness is reigning. And again, no, notice that's the ultimate reward. 
it's not just being able to see the land, to see the kingdom age, to see heaven's glory. The ultimate reward is being able to actually see not only the king, but to see the king in all of his beauty. That's going to be the reward. To see the beauty of Jesus, to see the glory of the Lord, that is the ultimate reward, to be able to actually behold him with our eyes, to one day see him in all of his beauty. We should be longing for that. One day that will be the great reward we do experience for living right before him. And he says to his people that their memories of all the hardships and the cruelty will be taken away. Verse 18, your heart will meditate on terror. In other words, terrible Horrible things would happen to them at that time historically and have happened to the Jews many times throughout history. But one day that meditation, that memory of terror will flee from them in this coming age. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? God says, you will not see a fierce people. In other words, their enemies who were fierce will be taken away. You won't see them anymore. A people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. So God seems to be describing in verse 18 and 19 this wonderful coming time for his people, Israel, when all the past cruelty of the horrible things that have been done for them, the terror and the, the cruel treatment that they've undergone, not only in this day historically, but many times throughout human history, their enemies against them, they will no longer, God says, you'll no longer see your enemy. And God says, all of those images and memories of the cruelty in your minds, they'll be gone. You'll say, where have they gone? We don't remember any of this anymore. None of this is something they could even recall. God would take it from their minds Verse 20, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, and your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home. In other words, God brings peace to their territory because he would eradicate their memories. A tabernacle that will not be taken down. In other words, it will be perpetual. It will never leave. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed nor any of its cords broken. It would be lasting. It would be there forever, perhaps even a reference to the holy city, the new Jerusalem that will one day come down, the tabernacle of God dwelling with mankind when he returns. But there the majestic Lord will be for us a peace, or excuse me, a place of broad rivers. So notice the presence of the majestic Lord will be among them, and he will be like to them a river, a broad river. Now, a broad river would not only allow access for food and supplies to be brought into them, but a broad river also became a defense because it became a separation, a barrier between you and your enemy. So he's describing God here likened to a broad river, their protector, as well as their provider, the majestic Lord in their midst, nor majestic ships pass by, for the Lord is, verse 22, our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. So notice, the Lord would be the one who would render for them as their judge just judgments. He would be the one who would establish righteous ways for them as their lawgiver in their midst. And the Lord also, thirdly, would be their king. He would be the one ruling over them in a proper way, bringing a righteous reign in the time that he was in their midst. And only the Lord, folks, in all of his perfection can be all three of those things at once. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can be all three at once, judge and lawgiver and king. No human being or no earthly king could ever fulfill that in an appropriate and a healthy manner. They could never handle that kind of responsibility. No human being could hold all three of those roles of judge and lawgiver and king. Now, for those of you who are historical buffs, it's very interesting to take note here, this description of the Lord as judge, lawgiver, and king. It's from this very verse here in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, that at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, James Madison proposed the idea of dividing the central government with separation of power into three branches. And you can see them right there in the verse. 
judge, a judicial branch, lawgiver, a legislative branch, a king, a ruling, or an executive branch, recognizing that though God in his wholesomeness and his purity and his perfection could be all three of those things, that no human being <laughs> should ever have that much power. And no central government should ever have that much power. And so this brought about from this idea in the word of God, the idea that was embraced in our own government of having a separation of powers and having therefore no one ever have that complete ability, but to have three separate branches, a judicial branch, a legislative branch, and an executive branch. Boy, would to God if we would only realize how much of the, the blessing of the establishment of our nation was drawn from principles of Scripture. And it's a reason why America has experienced much of the blessing and prosperity it has historically. Verse 23, he says, And your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mass. They could not spread the, saw, the sail. And then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. So he seems to be describing, again, as God's swift and thorough defeat of the Assyrians would come to pass, it would be like, he describes verse 23 there poetically, the swift defeat of the Assyrians would be like an unavoidable shipwreck. And as the result of that, God's people would be able to reap the rewards, the plunder, the spoils of the Assyrians because of the victory that God brought to them. And verse 24, again, seems to look out further down to God describing what would be the blessing of the ultimate enjoyment when God throws off all of their enemies and rules and reigns in the kingdom age where the inhabitants upon the earth in the time of the kingdom age, when God is reigning as judge, lawgiver, and king, where things like sickness will be eradicated from the inhabitants of the earth in the kingdom age, the inhabitants will, say, will not say, I am sick. In other words, illness has been removed. How wonderful that's going to be. And he says there'll be a full awareness and an assurance. The people who dwell in the time of the kingdom age will know that they have been forgiven of their iniquity. So again, knowing that no illness or physical infirmity will exist in the bodies of people and knowing as well that there's no spiritual illness anymore. We're not struggling with sin and wrestling uh, as we're getting to enjoy the righteous reign of Christ and even for you and I as believers living in our glorified bodies. Now, chapter 34, I want to briefly take you through this if we could here, and trust me, you'll appreciate that I say briefly because it describes really a lot of the severe judgment, much of this we've been talking about in our study in Revelation, that is going to come upon the earth during the time of really, I believe, chapter 34, describing what would be the final battle, the battle of all battles, the battle of Armageddon, as God unleashes his severe wrath and judgment upon humanity. Because you notice the shift now becomes global. Chapter 34, verse 1, come near you nations. So notice we're talking about not just a nation, not just the Assyrians now, but nations, plural. So we're talking about God's anger and his judgment poured out upon the nations, plural, globally. And heed you people, let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Why? Because all of humanity globally had been rebelling against God for human history. And his fury against all their armies, he has utterly, utterly destroyed them and given them over to slaughter. Also their slain, verse 3, shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses. So the picture here of a great battlefield with corpses and slain bodies. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. The mountains shall be melted with their blood. So what he is beginning to describe here now is the wrath of the Lord being poured out in judgment at this time. And again, this is the just holy wrath of God. And this battle of Armageddon, you might want to write into your notes, Revelation chapter 16, we'll see when we get there. But ultimately, this is seeming to describe what the Bible gives more picture of in Revelation 19, 
verses 11 through 21, where at the second coming of Jesus, that a group of people, an army out of the east and other armies who have come together to fight against themselves, ultimately at the return of Jesus at his second coming, as he comes back and appears, you and I coming back with him as he's riding as a glorified warrior king, coming back on his horse, and you and I coming back with him as the armies of heaven. Notice he describes there verse 2, the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. Because what will happen is these armies that come together in the battle of Armageddon will first be ready to have conflict with one another, but then when they see Jesus return, they unify in their hatred towards the Lord, and they turn their weapons against the Lord, as humorous as that is, and it really is humorous. You wonder why God says that he laughs, sometimes humanity. And they think they're going to defeat Jesus, this coming king coming through the sky, and Jesus makes very quick work with a word of his mouth. He brings great slaughter and overthrows all of these enemies, and there's great amount of bloodshed during the time of the Battle of Armageddon as he supernaturally destroys these armies of mankind making one final rebellion against him, even in his second coming. Verse 4 says, And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. Their hosts shall fall down like a leaf falling from the vine. Like again, like a leaf just falling off at the end of a season, and the fruit falling from a fig tree. So notice, just like when someone finishes up the story or reading a record on a scroll, and they, as soon as they finish, just roll it up and set it aside because they're done with it. He describes here how the Lord will simply roll up like a scroll all of physical creation. When he is done with it serving its purpose, he'll just roll it up like a scroll and just set it aside because a new day is now coming. Verse 5, he says, For my sword, again, this is God speaking, shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom, now literally a historical uh, battle would take place to some degree God's describing, but Edom is often here you being used predominantly of a greater picture of a representation of the world. He says, indeed it shall come down upon Edom and on the people of, interesting, the people of my curse. Again, the curse coming from the Garden of Eden, the sin of mankind. The people of my curse for judgment, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. Many of this language very similar to Isaiah chapter 63, Revelation chapter 19. It is overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Eden. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls and their land shall be soaked verse 7 says, with blood, great bloodshed from the slain people all over the globe, and their dust saturated with fatness. So verses 5, 6, and 7 here, poetic language describing the severe judgment of God, and it's describing it like a holy sacrifice. The language here, poetically, is like the offering of a great blood sacrifice like the blood of animals overflowing here as in a sense like the sacrifice as the result of all the bloodshed as the result of God's holy wrath being meted out. And remember, in a sacrifice, death comes to pass to satisfy wrath. Whenever a sacrifice was made, that was the purpose of a blood sacrifice, to restore peace and to restore justice that was needed because things had gone amiss. And so when God brings his judgment, it will be a holy judgment and it will be much like a sacrifice to bring justice that was necessary. Verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Notice he is now bringing vengeance against rebellious humanity that had rebelled against him for all of history. The year, take notice of this, verse 8, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion, again, Jerusalem. So again, take notice, part of this is not just repaying humanity, but there is something in the midst of God's judgment of also making due repayment and recompense for the cause of what's been done to Zion or to Israel. And this is a time as well when God is meeting out severe judgment 
upon all those who have harshly and cruelly brought painful things for the cause of the nation of Israel. And God says, one day I will bring vengeance for that. Its streams shall be turned into pitch, its dust into brimstone, its land shall become burning pitch like an oil field lit on fire. It shall not be quenched in the night or the day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. Now, this is a description of what would happen to Edom, but again, it's a, a, a picture foreshadowing the great global judgment to a greater degree that would come to pass. Notice, no one shall pass through it forever and ever. Verse 11, but the pelican and the porcupine, the animals, shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing. So it's describing, so thorough will the judgment of God be that he says, the inhabitants will no longer be left upon the earth. Things will be left, he's describing, in an uninhabitable condition. So severe the cataclysmic judgments that will come upon the earth. Again, we're studying much of this in our teaching through Revelation. So severe will the judgments of God be that it will leave the earth and creation in such a condition where humanity won't be able to inhabit it anymore. There will be such a loss of life and a global death toll that everyone who rebelled had now been held accountable that no one could escape. And now the earth is left uninhabitable. He says, verse 13, the thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a quarter for the ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals and the wild goats shall bleat to its companion. Also, the creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay her eggs and hatch and gather them under their shadow. There shall also the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. So again, just using Isaiah poetic language here to describe the end result will be such a tremendous, again, very sad to think of, such a tremendous loss of life for humanity on a global level, that things will be left in such a bad condition. He describes here poetically how only animals left roaming and how Edom would be left in that condition. But again, this is a sense of how bad the death toll will be when the day of the indignation of the Lord comes to pass on a global level and all that will be left among those who have rejected is just the animals roaming in this uninhabited type condition left upon the earth as the result of the great devastation of that time. But yet, interesting, he says that every one of the animals will still, interesting, the end of verse 15, still have a mate. And then the, the chapter concludes saying, search from the book of the Lord and read. And that's always a good piece of advice. Search from the book of the Lord and read. In the midst of all that that you think, why in the world do we have to read that? Well, God always says, listen, continue to search from the book of the Lord and read, because you're never going to find things of the knowledge of God and understand things to a greater degree if you're not searching the book of the Lord and reading. God says, in the midst of all these things, search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fall. Not one of what? Not one of God's promises. Not one of God's statements. Not one of God's truths. Not one of God's principles. Not nothing in God's word shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. Now, there he's describing the animals just above that would all have their mate still, despite the horrible conditions on the earth. For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them, that is, gathered the animals so that they could each find their mate still to exist on the planet once globally there's been a great death toll of humanity. He has cast the lot for them, that is, for the animals, all those that were left, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever, 
from generation to generation they shall dwell in it. Now, interesting the way this chapter comes to a conclusion here. God, again, using this great devastation that will come on the land of Edom as a picture of a greater foreshadowing of global judgment. After Edom became a wasteland, all the animals still, God says, would have a mate. And they would still find their mate because God would make sure they could still find their mate. And the reason was God was in total control of orchestrating his plan and purpose by his spirit's work. And this is what he's describing where he says, search and see that not one of the things that I have said shall fail, not one will lack a mate because God says, my mouth has commanded it and my spirit will accomplish it. My word has declared it and my spirit will bring it to pass. And they could look to God's written word as evidence of God's work verifying that God always keeps his word. God's mouth speaks it, God's word says it, and then God's spirit orchestrates it and brings it to pass. And that same pattern is true for every portion of the word of God, not just this chapter that we read and you said, thank goodness we read that in eight minutes because that would have been a torture if he did that for a whole Bible study. Every principle, every truth, every promise in the word of God, search it, read it, and God says, listen, I've commanded it with my mouth, and I have the character of credibility, and I always keep my word. Everything you find. If my mouth's declared it, God says, my spirit will orchestrate it. And every truth you find in the word of God, folks, it applies for that. The truths about overcoming sin, the promises of God taking care of us, the assurances of heaven and eternal glory, everything God's word says, if his mouth commanded it, his spirit will bring it to pass. The power of his spirit will do it. And that gives a wonderful encouragement to search and read the word of God. You guys are troopers. Let's stand.